Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Olcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Cal Newport. Cal is the author of Deep Work and a new book, Digital Minimalism. So if you're listening to this as it just comes out, then it's worth just saying that, uh, firstly, just thanks to all of you who've bought the new book, Work Fuel. It's uh, had a really good reception, uh, trending really well on Amazon and all that sort of stuff. So we're really pleased with uh, the first thoughts. And I've had some amazing messages from people saying, uh, in fact, I had one a couple of days ago from someone saying they've spontaneously started running because they had more energy. And just things like that that are just really lovely to hear. Uh, just coming in from the first people who are reading Workfuel. So if you've read the book, then fantastic. Thank you. And please do keep spreading the word about Workfuel. So let's get into this episode. This is Cal Newport, Professor Cal Newport, and um, probably one of the guests I've had the most requests to have on Beyond Busy. Um, His book, Deep Work, really just chimed with me in just the, the way that it talks about how to manage attention. And I talk about this a lot. Um, in the workshops that Think Productive does, manage attention, not time. He takes this stuff onto a whole nother level and is just um, such a great thinker on this stuff. So um, if you haven't come across uh, the books, then Deep Work is probably his most famous one. And the new one is called Digital Minimalism. We'll be hearing all about both those books in the episode. We recorded this down the line, but in the, tam- in the same time zone. So I'm in Toronto, um, he's in Washington, and here we go. Here's my interview with Cal Newport. <laughs> Uh, we're rolling. I'm here with Cal Newport. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to talk with you. And uh, I had I'm in Toronto, and I had snow last night. So are you are you looking outside into sunshine? I'm literally looking outside in the blooming trees and sunshine. So lovely. <laughs> Let me just rub that in. <laughs> Spring is here, which feels very good. Yes, yes, I can't complain. So I have to say, you're probably one of the people who I've had the most requests to be on Beyond Busy. So it's really nice to to have you on the show finally. And um, I guess uh, we'll come on and talk about your new book, um, Digital Minimalism. But I think we should probably start with deep work because that's probably the thing that you're you're best known for. And there's probably going to be a a large proportion of people who are listening to this who've come across deep work, who've come across the concept or read the book. But for those who haven't come across it, should we just start there? So what what does deep work mean and uh, why is it a sort of professional concern to you? Like what's this mission that you're on with deep work? So Deep Work was uh, my book that came out in 2016, just to sort of calibrate this in uh, in time. And it was about this activity of Deep Work, which is my name for when you are focused without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So when you're locked into something and you're not doing any distractions or any break of concentration, so not even a glance at a phone or an inbox. The basic argument of that book is that Deep work is becoming more valuable in the knowledge economy for for various reasons, various shifting economic forces. This ability to focus intensely is becoming increasingly valuable. At the same time, that's becoming increasingly rare, mainly due to unintended side side effects or consequences of of technologies like email or or social media or or high-speed digital networks more generally. And so we have this mismatch. We have a skill that's becoming more valuable at the exact same time that it's becoming more rare. That's a classic econ 101 supply and demand moment, which means its price is going to be very high. And so right. in that book, I say, hey, if you're, if you're an individual, you're an organization, 
that cultivates the skill, like does that on purpose, gets really good, really prioritizes it, trains it, you're going to have a huge competitive advantage. Sure. And the competitive advantage comes about because you're focused and you're able to build stuff, make stuff, do things that have real value. But then if you transpose that to someone who's listening to this, who works in a, a bigger organization, so there's a, there's a stat in your book, which I really liked, which is that 60% of people's work weeks are taken up with digital communications. I think it was a McKinsey uh, study. And so if you think about that from the point of view of someone who's in the middle of that, that sort of throng of, of data and information being chucked at them all the time, how do they get there? How do they start to make that space for the stuff that really matters and the stuff that has value? Well, the vocabulary is the first step and it's an important step. So just recognizing that there's a two different types of activities. There's, there's the activities where you're actually trying to produce new value with your brain. That's deep work. And then there's everything else, which is logistics and communication about work. In most knowledge work organizations, it's only the deep work that actually moves the needle. That's what actually produces the new proverbial car off the assembly line that could be sold and make more money for the organization. And so once you can separate those two things, just as a starting point, that's really important because that gets you out of this trap of just, I'm busy all the time. That must be I'm doing what I'm doing. And instead, you can think, well, how much time am I spending actually using my brain to create new knowledge that's worth money? And how much time am I doing uh, doing logistics and administrations and talking about work? So, so first of all, you want to separate it. And then once you separate it and you know what you're looking for, you can begin to fight for it in your schedule. And there's a lot of different ways that that might unfold from just habits you can do as an individual to more systemic types of conversations you might have with your entire team. But for me, that key first step is understanding deep work is different than shallow work. You need shallow work to keep the lights on, but you should be fighting for deep work because that's what's actually going to move the needle. Yeah, I I took a sabbatical in um, 2017. And when I came back to work, I sort of instinctively noticed a couple of things. One was that I really wanted, I was sort of craving a lot more structure. And the second thing was that I'd really started to notice how in the time away from work, I'd been using my phone a lot more. I'd been in that kind of shallow communication um, space a little bit more. And the thing that I created around that was was something I think that is that really resonates with what you just said there, which is like, I've got this thing called the three C's. So create is the is is essentially the deep work time it's the kind of getting down and uh really focusing on things and then collaborate is the time where i'm doing more of the shallow work and uh you know like doing the stuff where in my eyes it's like i'm uh the bottleneck and i need to free myself of that bottleneck so that other people can get their work done um, and then the third one for me was was chill which is just the idea of being much more intentional about the stuff that you do outside of work as well. And I think there's just a real resonance in, um, in reading your stuff, you know, with um, uh, some of the, the work that we do at Think Productive as well. So yeah, really excited to talk about that some more. And you talked about in the book, this idea of um, batching and sort of batching different types of work. There's a, an academic example that you uh, looked at where an academic sort of does most of their teaching work at one part of the year and most of their research in another part of the year, and then kind of micro-batching as well. So do you want to say a bit more about that and just how how that can really help to boost productivity and increase attention? Well, so something we know about the way the human brain works is that if you want to try to generate a lot of cognitive horsepower, so think hard and produce things that are worth a lot of value, uninterrupted, long chunks of uninterrupted time is really important. And this is because there's a sort of psychological cost that we now understand pretty well to context switching. 
So when you're staring at, let's say, that open Word document and thinking really hard about writing a brief or whatever it is, the, the deep work effort that's in front of you, but every 10 or 15 minutes, you quickly jump over to Gmail just to make sure that the, some urgent email you're waiting for hasn't yet arrived. That seems harmless because for the most part, you're just focusing on the Microsoft Word document thinking hard. And it's really only a minute here and a minute there that you're looking at your email. But we now know from modern psychology that there's a real cost to that context switch. So by switching your attention to that email and then switching it back, there's an attention residue left from that switch that makes it harder to think hard, right? It reduces your cognitive performance. It could take a while for it to clear out. Yeah. And so if you really want to get the most value or benefit out of your brain, we know it works better to be doing hour after hour of just working on one thing. We have to count those quick checks of phones and inboxes uh, to be almost as dangerous as the old, old-fashioned old multitasking where people used to keep multiple windows open at the same time. It can be almost as And do you know what? I mean, it's so funny going into organizations, the amount of times I see people still having... 15 windows open on the screen in front of them and, you know, 15 sets of paperwork and phones and screens around them, um, often with lots of different things. So I think there's, it just feels like there's a lot of, there's a lot of work for you to do here, right? In um, helping organizations to kind of see this differently. Right. Well, I also want to add that uh, something that happened, which, which goes underreported, but I think is really important is that starting in the 1990s in particular, where we really began to integrate personal computers and digital networking into people's daily work experience, we actually had an explosion of the amount of sort of administrative work, what you would call collaborate in your framework, Mm. added to the daily routine of most typical workers that had some sort of uh, skilled product that they produce. We're used to it now, but it's actually quite artificial. And it was a sort of unintended consequence of adding these productivity-enhancing computers, networks, and tools into our life is that we have jammed together huge amounts of administrative responsibilities on the same plate uh, of people that are also supposed to be doing highly skilled thinking to produce value. There's a This is an effect. I don't write about this in deep work, but it's something I've been researching more recently. There's this effect that the economist Peter Sasson calls the diminishment of intellectual specialization. And essentially what happens is when you get these new tools like email and computers and word processors and spreadsheets, in the short term, you say, great, this is going to save us so much money. We don't need dedicated support staff. Now you, the programmer, can write your own memos or you can you don't need a typist. And you, with email, you don't need a secretary to handle your phones when you're not around. It seems like you're saving money. But what happens is, is you throw basically all the administrative work onto the plate of the people who are supposed to be doing intellectually specialized work. And their productivity drops so much that you would actually be saving money to have remained, kept the investment in dedicated administrative staff because it now takes many more of the high-skilled workers to produce the same amount of work that would be capable with less workers if you're able to aggressively segregate the administrative from the specialized. And so I just mm, want to put that as an yeah. aside, but a good foundation for this conversation is that we have mixed the administrative and the specialized uh, to a huge degree. And we did this in an emergent fashion, right? It's not that it was a great grand plan. It's something that just kind of crept up on us. And I think it's a source of both a lot of lost productivity and unhappiness. Like, why do you think that is? So is that because technology started to emerge and it just felt like a natural thing to do? Do you think it was, a, do you think it was more um, considered that than that from a management perspective and people were looking at how, how to save money? What, why do you think that happened? I think there's two things that happened. Right. So one was the money-saving argument. And, and this was sort of predating, let's say, tools like email, but more about the arrival of the personal computer. 
it was just cheaper in the short term not to have to pay the salaries of administrative assistants or other types of dedicated support staff. Yeah. In the end, though, it turned out that it was costing more money, as I mentioned before. Then the other thing that happened is when we brought in tools like email, uh, it allowed us to return to a more natural and less structured way of coordinating with people, the same way that we used to coordinate with small groups on the tribal savannah 10,000 years ago, which is mm. let's just have unstructured conversation. Right? We can just figure things out on the fly. We'll send messages back and forth throughout the day. If I need this, I'll let you know. If you need something, you let me know. This is how we naturally coordinate in small groups. Email made it possible to scale that up to big organizations because everyone could monitor an inbox all day and we could have these constant ongoing conversations. And so that arose in part because it was much more flexible and convenient. Unfortunately, that also directly conflicts with our human psychology because you have to continually check in on these conversations for that to work. And every time you check on the conversation, you, you incur that context switching effect, which then makes you worse at doing the work that you're actually talking about in these conversations. And so I think we had two forces. One, the diminishment of intellectual specialization. So productivity enhancing computers came in. We said, great, now everyone can do more stuff on their own, which put way too much stuff on people's plate. And then two, the rise of low friction digital communication allowed us to try to scale up this sort of small group tribal communication habits that we're used to from the Paleolithic. We tried to scale it up to organizations. And as a result, what we have today is like that McKinsey report you talked about, what it found, where highly skilled brains being paid lots of money to use those brains to produce knowledge spend the bulk of their day tending conversations and attending meetings and doing administrative chores. Uh, I think we're in a real mess of a state and knowledge work right now, and probably huge innovations are coming down the line as we figure this out. And I guess in some ways, you look at knowledge work as being a very new thing, right? So if you think about the Industrial Revolution, it happened over a longer period of time, whereas we're still, you know, computers are still a relatively new addition to the workforce in that sense. It's, it's really new. And, and I did, I went back and studied the Industrial Revolution. Like I was curious, for example, in the history of the assembly line, mm. the assembly line comes really late. I mean, hundreds of years <laughs> into the Industrial Revolution. Now, the thing about the assembly line, if we want to use this analogy, is that it was a huge pain when Henry Ford introduced it, right? I mean, it was a really annoying way to run a factory. It was not at all natural. The way they were building cars before the assembly line was just very natural. You had a team over here building a car. You had another team over there building another car. It's, it was just scaling up what we did naturally. The assembly line was a huge pain. It was incredibly artificial. It required more overhead, more money, more management, mm. and had lots of hard edges where things could go wrong. Like if this section of the assembly line was going a little bit too fast compared to this section. And so it was a huge pain. Yeah. But it produced cars 100 times faster. And this is what I think is coming in knowledge work. When, when you say to someone, hey, just sitting around answering email all day, this can't be the way to actually extract the most value from human brains. Their first reaction is, but all I can think about is the hard edges or bad things or inconveniences that could happen in a workflow where I couldn't just reach people all the time. To which my response is, well, if you look back at the mm. history of the Industrial Revolution, yeah, that's kind of how these things go. I mean, what's the thing that's going to be most productive, the thing that's going to be most sustainable for people's minds so they don't burn out, the thing that's going to allow them to produce the best stuff that they're proud of, is probably not going to be the easiest and most convenient thing. It's probably going to require more overhead. It's probably going to require just like the assembly line that you hire many more people just to manage the assembly line, many more support staff. It's probably going to cause a lot of small bad things to happen, things that are missed or inconveniences. But if it's producing the proverbial car is 100x faster, then I think we still want to do it. Absolutely. And I, and I suppose that then gives you, in the work that you do, just a huge mission to focus on for the next few years is how to shape that and and what does that look like as as the sort of designed of knowledge work in the future 
Yeah, let's just say that the working title of the new book I'm working on is A World Without Email. (laughs) I should give you some sense of where my mind is right now. (laughs) That sounds like, I think for a lot of people listening to this, that sounds like a good world. (laughs) Yeah, or or like a, it sounds like a fantasy book, actually, I think, that most people are listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, although I was doing a talk a little while ago and someone in the audience um, who who is probably in her first or second job, fairly young, she put her hand up and said, yeah, well, you're talking about how email is a problem, but we've actually eliminated email in our company. And I said, that sounds amazing. And she goes, we use this thing, it's called Slack. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, <laughs> so you've just moved the problem from one place to another. And it turns out she was more addicted to Slack than most people seem to be addicted to email, but there you go. Um, so let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about digital minimalism. So um, that's the, the new book. And we should probably start this by saying, you did a TED talk a couple of years ago that's... Um, very widely shared online, uh, but you stand up at the start of the TED Talk and say, I have never had a social media account. And here I am as a a millennial guy working in computer science, having never had that. So uh, do you think that was your lucky break in hindsight, the fact that you just uh, decided spontaneously not to have Facebook and that that's that further down the line gave you a, just a unique position to look at this stuff from? I, I think it was a lucky break because I can't even remember exactly the circumstances under which I didn't sign up for social media. I mean, I have a lot of different memories. I don't know which one is right, but whatever the right story was, I never signed up. And I got to watch this really interesting and distressing transformation that happened somewhere around 2010 to 2014 where the social media companies re-engineered the social media experience from something that was sort of more of a novelty, something more static, something you checked in on once or twice a week. They re-engineered it into something that you would check compulsively on your phone because they needed those revenue numbers to go up. And for a lot of people, it was like the frog in the pot of water that gets hotter and hotter, slow enough that you don't even notice that it's up to a boil. But for me, watching on the outside... I could just see the world change from the a world where people had iPhones that they would listen to music on and take out occasionally to a world in which they were looking at these things all the time. And it was the social media companies had transformed the way our culture worked. And the people in the middle of it didn't really notice. But for those of us on the outside, it hit us as an incredibly striking thing. And it was really surprising that more people weren't noticing or talking mm. about it. Do you know, as you were talking there, I was just thinking back to when I first got a Facebook account. And I've long since deleted it and don't have one. But... I remember in those first few years, it was like a novelty thing that you would just you would just check it on a computer two or three times a week, or you know maybe once a day maximum. It was kind of it was almost like friends reunited from you know back in the day, and it wasn't a thing that was sort of harassing you and bombarding you on your phone. It it, it was a thing that you almost intentionally went to look at for a few minutes and then moved away from. This isn't the kind of era before the like button and. It's funny that almost like no one remembers that now, that it has massively shifted. Right. And and this is a key shift, too. I mean, essentially what happened is the IPO for Facebook drove a lot of this. And they innovated ideas that a lot of other social media companies and then other types of companies then took on. But they had to get their revenue numbers up. And to do that, they had to get eyeballs on the screen drastically improved. So they had this general idea that if Facebook is on the phone, Mm, people would have the opportunity to look at it a lot more than it was just on the computer, but they had to figure out how do we do this? And this is the whole era of the like button and tags and photos and comments and retweets and favorites and all these type of things that came in the social media years after these tools were introduced. The reason these became a big emphasis in all of these different services is that now when you tapped on the app, it was not about, I really want to see what Graham is up to this yeah. week. It was about, have people liked what I last posted? 
It was social approval indicators coming at you all day long and in an intermittent fashion. So sometimes you'd hit the button and oh, no one has liked what I've done. Sometimes you would hit it and it was a bonanza. Everyone liked this. The retweets popped up and that was irresistible. Right. Yeah. And that, that made it so it was very difficult. If you had that phone in your pocket, well, why don't I just check it one more time? Because there's these novel indicators about people thinking about me that are coming in a hard to predict fashion. All of that was intentional. All of that is what built us into this habit of, oh, phones are something that we check all the time. Right. That's an arbitrary behavior that was more the instantiation of a business plan than it was some just emergent reaction to people figuring out, like, this is how I want to use this technology. And a really powerful point that you've made along those lines is um, just the idea of the slot machine and how the attention engineers of these companies um, sort of randomize that dopamine hit that you get when you when you see something come up. Do you want to just talk a little bit a little bit more about how how social media is akin to having a slot machine in your pocket? So behavioral psychologists figured out doing experiments with pigeons that when rewards come unpredictably they seem to be more compelling. So if you give a pigeon a lever that it can peck with its beak and get some food, Mm. it will do it for a while. It'll eat the food and then it'll get bored with it, right? And move on. On the other hand, if you rig the system such that sometimes when they hit the lever, they get some food and sometimes when they hit the lever, they don't. So it's intermittent and hard to predict. That does something to the dopamine system Mm. that causes the pigeon to keep pecking at that lever way beyond what they did before, right? So it's basically hijacking bugs in the brain to get you to do something a lot. So now we go to Las Vegas Casino Gambling. They started to use this research, in particular, once slot machines became digital. So when slot machines became digital, you could hard code into the chip exactly whatever schedule of rewards you wanted. That, you know, this type of reward happens X percent of the time. This higher type of reward happens Y percent of the time. You could program that in. So they got really serious about studying what was the optimal reinforcement schedules that are going to keep the little old ladies pulling the slot machine handles well into the nights. They took what was seen in the pigeons and they really supercharged it for the human brain. Well, now there's accusations that some of the attention engineers in Silicon Valley looked at that research and they said, okay, the slot machine lever pull here is pressing the app on your phone. The reward is the social approval indicators that you see when you tap on the app on your phone. And both Adam Alter at NYU and Tristan Harris, the former Google employee turned whistleblower, they both claim that they have evidence that Facebook and Instagram began artificially batching things like likes and favorites to better match these Las Vegas-inspired reinforcement schedules. They really do see this as, I want. we need people to look at this phone as much as possible for us to hit the revenue numbers. And they were serious about it. They spent a lot of money on it and had a lot of smart people thinking about it. And that's primarily why our culture got retrained to think about our phone as a constant companion, which again, I keep going back to emphasize that's not the way we used to use them. And there's nothing fundamental about this technology that says that's the best way to use them. It was invented by a small number of companies. Yeah, I I saw um, Rutger Bregman speak recently, who um, uh, wrote this book about utopia for idealists. I don't know if you've come across it, but he um, uh, was saying, isn't it such a shame that you know, the the brightest minds in the world, their ambition is to go to Silicon Valley and help us all to click ads more often. And uh, he sort of referenced um, a conversation that he'd had with Gary Kasparov, the chess player, where um, Gary Kasparov said that in Russia in the, in the 60s and 50s and 60s, when he was growing up, you know, everybody wanted to be an astronaut, like all the, the greatest minds would always strive to be an astronaut. And then it shifted in the 80s where all of those same greatest minds coming through the education system all wanted to be bankers. 
And, you know, he has this whole um, thesis about so many of the really well-paid jobs out there are actually pretty useless from a sort of societal point of view, uh, which is just really interesting. Um, I want you to um, give me some advice. So I, I gave it face, Facebook many years ago. Um, I'm still, I'm kind of one foot in Twitter and I feel myself getting pulled into Twitter at times, you know, like you just get drawn into the, the Trump and the Brexit conversations and all those kind of things. And I feel like there's a need for me to keep it on as somebody who writes books and needs to tell people that I've written a new book. But then I noticed that you don't have Twitter and you seem to do all right. So, and I do use blockers as well. So I have a, a way of being able to uh, block certain apps at certain times of the day. But do you think I should just do the thing in your book, which is this sort of 30 day complete declutter and, you know, be completely cold turkey on this stuff for a while? Um, do you think I'm, you know, do you think I'm addicted and I don't realize it? Like, what do you think? Uh, I think you should do the 30 day process because I think almost everyone should, uh, because this is what I discovered working on the question of what's the right way to get your hand on these technologies is that anything short of something that drastic tends not to work. But I've had a lot of people go through this process. Over 1,600 people went through this 30-day process, and it does really seem to work. And so, I mean, the idea for you would be, yeah, you do step away for 30 days from anything you can. So this would include Twitter. And you will get a detox effect, but that won't be the whole point. The real point will be to try to take that time, to take that extra space and quiet you have being away from this technology for a month to figure out what's really important. Like what you actually want to spend your time on, what actually moves the needle professionally, what's really important to you in your personal life. And then when that's over, ask, what's the best way, if any, to use technologies to help these goals? And so I don't know what you'll end up with Mm. once you finish that process, what combination of tools and rules surrounding those tools that you'll put in place. But it's almost certainly going to be much cleaner and much more effective and much less noisy than the haphazard collection that most of us have staring at us from our phone. And so... Yeah, I think you should do it. And then you should tell us all how it goes. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you have that you feel are that you're most drawn to or addicted to? So do you have like WhatsApp on your phone? Do you have other things that are not social media? Well, so it, you know, I mean, in terms of my own digital life, like when I go through that, that same process of trying to figure out what, what do I really care about? And then how, what's the best way to use technology? Things that have emerged as really important for me, for example, involve blogging. So like I'm a huge blog nerd. For the, for the type of writing and thinking I do, mm. the ability to sort of develop long-form ideas and to have a dedicated community of readers that can give me feedback on those ideas or point me in interesting directions, this is really meaningful. Uh, it, it makes my life much more interesting. It makes me much better at a writer. Uh, but if I didn't look at like Twitter, which, hey, maybe that could have similar effects, but maybe not as strong, I say, well, that's, that might be kind of helpful, but it's not nearly as helpful as I'm being on a blog. It's not the best way to use technology to help my, my effort to try to develop ideas and get feedback, so I don't use that at all. And so I have blogging in my life. Um, email plays a pretty important role in the sense that there's some sort of people I know, sort of peers in the writing world, that for years and years, we have these sort of long uh, epistolatory relationships going back and forth based on you know, email letters going back and forth. So email has been something really important for me connecting with other great minds. But I don't use any other social mm. media. Uh, I, I don't web surf much. I don't believe in even bookmarks because I, I don't like the idea of having a cycle of sites that you go through mindlessly. I figure if a site's really important to me, I'll remember it. And so as even as a computer scientist who writes remember, and engages yeah. with the digital yeah. world, I I'm, I'm, have a pretty light footprint in that world. But where I do take steps, I get a lot of value out of it. Nice. Um, and tell me about your email habits. Uh, well, you know, this is 
this is the a real topic <laughs> that I'm interested in right now. Um, so, so the main thing, a couple important things about my email habits. I'm still working on this, um, but a couple important things is one. I do a lot of expectation setting, especially when it comes to sort of my public facing persona as a writer. So I don't have a general purpose email address that anyone can use and assume they're going to get an answer. If you go to calnewport.com, you go to the contact page, there'll be specific channels for specific reasons. Like if you need, if you're interested in this, you can send a message here. If you want to send me like some interesting links, you can send the messages here. And I have really clear expectations about when you should or shouldn't expect to get a response. Uh, I worried that might annoy people. It turns out it doesn't. Mm. Clarity is what people crave more than they crave accessibility. They just need to have their expectations set and then they're fine. And then in terms of my work email, uh, it's something that I do not, I, I reject the idea of using email as an ongoing unstructured conversation. Even though I know that's convenient and adaptive and flexible, I just don't do it. And so it's not unusual for me to go a day or two without seeing my inbox. Now, this annoys people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And it does cause problems. And I recognize that people who aren't professors and writers don't have that flexibility. Um, but I'm taking advantage of that flexibility. And so my emails batch up quite a bit. And I'm pretty bad at using mm-hmm. the service. Um, but I think it's to my advantage. That's so funny because I quite often get that same question. I can go a couple of days too without looking at my email. But then, you know, the the response if I'm doing a talk or something is, well, that's fine for you to do. But I'm in an office where my boss expects me to be on it 24-7. And uh, I like your articulation of, well, I have that flexibility, so I'm going to take advantage of it. So surely the uh, the aim is that people need to try and cultivate that within their teams rather than uh, just curse the likes of me and you for having that flexibility right now. Yeah, there are plenty of reasons to curse the likes of you and me, but right, <laughs> maybe that does need to be one of them. Um, and you said something there that I really liked from the book as well, which is um, in terms of digital minimalism and minimalism in general, minimalists don't mind missing small things. And I think that's something that, particularly in our society where we're very driven by perfection and we're very driven by completing everything and nothing falling between the cracks and and that kind of a mentality, it can be quite a difficult emotional thing sometimes, the idea of of missing things or or missing out on things. So could you just tell us a bit more about that and how you how you personally and how you sort of um, help other people to to deal with the idea of missing things. So this fear of missing out is really an instantiation of a common philosophy throughout our history, which is called maximalism. And so the maximalism philosophy says you don't want to miss out on any possible value. So to a maximalist, if they miss out on something that could be valuable, they, they experience that as if someone took that value from them. Mm. You know, so like someone took something from me. So they get really, really worried about, I don't want to miss any possible value. In a lot of arenas in our life, it's pretty clear that maximalism is not in our best interest, right? So if we think about maximalism with respect to our physical stuff in our house, the biggest maximalists are also called hoarders. <laughs> so their entire house is overstuffed with with whatever. And the reason it is, like if you talk to a hoarder, they're really worried about getting rid of something that they might need one day or that has some little bit of value, or one day they might find it to be sentimental. If you, if you go into a hoarder's house, you can point to anything. And they'll be able to give you a reason why it's really important that they keep it. In fact, this is an effect that people know who've worked with hoarders to clean their house, is that it's actually really difficult to talk them into getting rid of anything, because there's always a story, this could bring me value, This maybe this could bring me value. right? But of course, they're much less happy having their house be overstuffed than they would be than if it was, if it was pared down to being more intentional. So uh, when we move over to our digital life, the same thing's going on. 
So not only do people have many more apps and services than they need, but they use them way more than they need, in part because they've told themselves this maximalist story that I might miss out on something. And if I do, it's right. like someone's taking that value from me. And so what's the, what's the antonym of maximalism? What's the thing that is the opposite of it in terms of an approach to life? Well, that's minimalism. And minimalism is an old idea. I mean, it goes all the way back to Marcus Aurelius. And it basically says, you know what? You're better off in most arenas of human endeavor focusing on the small number of things that you know for sure are really important to the exclusion of other things that might give you a little bit of value. Um, if you focus your energy on the things that you know are really valuable, you will end up better off than trying to take some of that energy, take it away from the really valuable things and spread it out over smaller value endeavors, mm. right? So a minimalist inside the house would be like Mary Kondo. Get rid of the stuff that is kind of cluttering up your house and a little bit important and just focus on the stuff that, you know, I really love this piece of clothing. I really wear it a lot. You'll end up much happier. In your digital life, minimalism is essentially saying, uh, find the small number of activities to give you huge wins and then just focus your energy on those. Don't dissipate or waste your energy on seeking out these small little boosts or wins because you're going to end up worse off. The, the minimalist is much more worried about not spending enough time on the things they know for sure they love than they are worried about missing out on small things that they don't even know about. So if I look at my, my phone screen, for example, where there are lots of apps that I would use on a very irregular basis, and then a small number of apps that I would use regularly. Would you say that part of that declutter process and part of minimalism generally would be to just get rid of all of the things that I'm not going to use, let's say more than once a month, and actually just start to become comfortable with the idea of some of those things just not having that utility? Because I do sometimes look at my phone screen and think, man, like I've got to you know scroll through two different screens to find things. And there, there is, even if I'm not using those apps, there is still a cost to having those things on the screen. And just, just a, I guess just a, a very small amount of my brain is engaged with each of those things all the time. Yeah, so the minimalist approach would say, yes, you want to focus it down to the small number of things on there that are really important to you or really touch on your values. And the right way to do it is not to try to go from the top down, right? You don't clean out your closet by occasionally taking out something you don't like. You instead go from the bottom up. You take out everything and only put back in the stuff that's really important. And so that's mm, what happens during yeah. this 30-day process I'm talking about. When you step away from all this tech for 30 days, it's not just taking a break. It's cleaning out the closet, right? It's a fresh start. You're starting over from a place of none of this technology. And that allows you to carefully rebuild up from scratch what is really worth adding back in here. And so when you do that process, almost automatically, probably most of the things populating your, your, your phone screens aren't going to make it back. Because for something to make it back, once you rebuild your digital life from scratch, there has to be a really pressing reason why it's very important. Mm. I think this is also a, a similar thing that we need to do more often in organizations and in teams. So I'm a big fan of, um, there's a, a British uh, brewer, I don't know if you've come across them, called Brewdog, and they make uh, craft beers and, and lagers and all this kind of thing. And one of their corporate values is um, blow stuff up. They actually have a, a slightly... Uh, more sweary word in the middle there than, than stuff, but um, blow stuff up. And so what I've often done with, with Think Productive is when we do an away day, we literally go through all the recurring meetings and, and technologies that we're using and different practices that we have and just ask the, the staff to just say to us, what do you think is not working? And it's been amazing, you know, the things that they've said, actually, that this is so little value that let's just get rid of it. And it turns out that's a a half an hour meeting for six people once a week, and you you know you multiply that o over the course of a year. That's a huge time saving just in that one meeting. So I think it's one of those things. 
you think as a society we're just much better at inventing things than de-inventing things, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, that, that's a common refrain. Um, it, it's much easier to put something in place than it is to, to take something away. Mm. And so I think you're right. Minimalism has a big role to play in the professional sphere as well. I mean, if you get caught up worrying, well, if we don't have this meeting, every once in a while, this thing might fall through the cracks. Maybe that'll be like a lost client or something like that. We, we really yeah. worry about that lost cost, but what we really should be focusing on is, hey, this type of activity we do produces us tons of value and gets us tons of clients. So what you should really be worried about is, are we not giving that as much attention as we can? Hey, if we get rid of these other small meetings, can we spend twice as much time just with our heads down doing X, Y, Z? That's more of the minimalist approach. Find the things that are really moving the needle and then figure out how can we get more time on those. And if that means clearing out other things that aren't bad, but just get in the way or bring you less value, that's okay. Yeah, it's it's almost like I was reading a book recently about behavioral economics and baseball, and it was kind of saying because I'm a big baseball geek, hence why I'm in Toronto right now. But um, there was this thing that statistically, if you've got somebody on third base and the decision is to send them to home and, and try and get a run or leave them at third, we tend to, um, as humans or certainly as the humans who are the third base coaches, leave them at third rather than send them home. Whereas actually, if you send them home, you've got statistically a pretty good chance of scoring a run and statistically a better chance of scoring a run than being cautious, leaving them at third and seeing if the next guy will score the run. But we don't do it because we tend to prioritize not looking foolish or making a mistake versus the fact that if someone is cautious and leaves them at third, what people don't realize is they've made a mistake by not sending them home, right? So it's like the things that you... The decisions that you see and the consequences that you see versus the consequences that you don't see. So I think I think you're right. It's it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? it? Was like it's very easy to say that one client is lost, but then we don't necessarily follow the thinking through and say, ah, but actually in that time that we would have had back, we might have got five new clients or five bigger pieces of value somewhere else. You know, I, I experienced this when I was out in Silicon Valley recently as part of the book tour, and I was I was talking with uh, executives and some some founders and people that are really deep in the tech industry. And uh, I was talking about how surprised I am about the amount of time that high-end developers have stolen away from them with administrative needs like meetings or this or that. And I remember one of the product managers who was there in this meeting said, no, 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 having our developers in all these meetings is really important. And he, and he listed all these little things like, you know, they can give us feedback on this which could help us in the product design, or they would know what's going on with the marketing. So they're more in the loop and they had all these little benefits. And all I could help thinking is, yeah, but if you just left them alone, like let's say you walked in tomorrow and said, guys, I got rid of your email address. <laughs> you don't have them anymore. We hired an assistant. Yeah. Everyone trying to talk to you just goes to this assistant. We'll fix the problems this causes later. All you do is code, right? They would probably, the, the value they would produce for the company in terms of how much they could produce, how good the quality of the code would be and how fast they could do it would probably be like a 3x improvement, probably the equivalent of hiring uh, three times more programmers. And yet we don't want to do that because, yeah, that's going to, it's going to upset a lot of things because a lot of other things would become difficult. They're not going to be there in those meetings to give suggestions. They're not going to be able to help this product manager, the marketing team. There's a lot of people whose life have become a little bit harder. There are some things that are get dropped. And I think you're right. We prioritize that as being more worrisome than we prioritize the benefit of, yeah, but they're going to produce the work of three programmers. Mm. If we, if we them completely alone and said, no one's allowed to talk to them. <laughs> you, know, you can talk to this assistant and I will take personal responsibility for all the things that fall through the cracks. Talk to me if there's a problem. I mean, I think if more leaders did that in some of these, uh, in some of these industries, it'd be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah. But that's kind of scary to do. 
Yeah. Do you, do you sometimes find when you go and have those kind of conversations as part of, you know, Q and A's and talks and other conversations that you're having, I mean, you're, you're in some ways going in there with a very contrarian, unusual message for them, even though I can totally see that it's logical and the, and the right way to go. So how do you deal with that from the point of view of when, you know, when someone's really entrenched in their position and you've got all the, the research that you've done to, you know, perhaps show why they might be wrong, but people just don't, people, people are very resistant to change. So do you sometimes feel like you're kind of shout, shouting and not being heard or, you know, do you sometimes feel like it's a kind of futile message that you're trying to get across because people do feel so entrenched in the way that they work currently? Well, one of the things I've discovered is that when you get to a point where you're no longer needing to change people's minds, but you're just articulating for them something that they already intuitively believe, that's actually where you want to be to push a message. Mm. And so we often have this vision that what what thinkers do that do sort of like idea books like I do, that their goal is to change people's minds, that you don't recognize the power of this or the dangers of this until you read the book. And then you, then you change things, like you're pushing back against people. But it actually hasn't been my experience. What I, <laughs> what I tend to do is I, I sit there, I'll, I'll write about things in articles, I'll mention things in interviews, I'll, I'll gauge the reaction. And it's once things go from skepticism to uh, almost universal enthusiasm that I recognize, okay, now it's time to write about it. So <laughs> like, let's consider my last... Like consider my last two books. So, so deep work is about as w- the things we've been talking about, sort of the value of attention in the professional workplace, the unintentional consequences of technology in the workplace. Um, I used to get a lot of of a pushback when I would talk about, about these type of issues, like you're crazy, like email is awesome, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like we love being agile, multitasking yeah. is great. But by the time that book came out, almost no one disagreed with the premise. They're just happy to have vocabulary. Same thing with digital minimalism. You know, I'd been talking. Uh, publicly skeptically about social media for years and years and was often dragged through the coals on this. You know, uh, I remember back in 2016 writing an op-ed for the New York Times where I said something critical about social media and it caused such an uproar that the New York Times actually commissioned a response op-ed mm-hmm. to run the next weekend just to put back the other side because they'd gotten such pushback. A couple years after, well, not even a couple years, maybe like a year after that, I noticed this shift. Like my TED talk about quitting social media suddenly jumped up to millions of views. When I would write for the Times again, there wasn't any pushback. Suddenly, the culture had shifted and people were more or less ready for that message. That's when I come out with digital minimalism. And so basically, when I'm getting a lot of pushback, I essentially see that as this idea is not ready yet. Mm. You know, okay. I'm not right, or we're not there at a place where people are ready to hear it. It's once people start saying, yeah, that's exactly right that I realized, okay, my service is now not to change people's minds, but to take what's already in their minds and put them into a really clear form. So they know what it is they're thinking about and how to act on it. And presumably that article a couple of years earlier that caused such a big response and big pushback, that didn't disrupt your day too much because you weren't responding to everything on Twitter and getting dragged into that too much. Well, that's that's kind of the nice thing about not being on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can, people can get as bad as they want, but they still find you know they still find you right. Like I, I remember doing even some radio interviews back then where they would do ambushes, like oh we want you to come on to talk about this article. That's interesting. Uh. Aha! Now bringing on the line live is this social media expert and this artist who uses social media to try to sell his work. And okay. <laughs> Tell them why Cal is wrong. You know, I mean, they, they would find a way to get you. I don't yeah. get any of that anymore. I mean, people, you know, the culture, the culture shifted, which is in part why I wrote Digital Minimalism is because people were getting really uneasy about their screens all of a sudden. And I wanted to help articulate 
what it was that was making them uneasy and give them some sense about what they could do about it. So I was really following the lead of the culture there. Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I think certainly in the UK, I think the culture is shifting too, but I think we generally shift slightly slower than the US. So I think maybe, um, maybe you're seeing that more and it's exciting to hear that that's coming further down the line uh, for us in the UK as well. Um, the other thing that is really interesting about your work is that as well as your your books and your talks and, and, and that work that you do, it should probably be mentioned that you're a prof- professor at Georgetown University too and have this whole other side. Something that was quite interesting to me in when I was researching you is obviously your your uh, blog is Cal Newport. And then when you go onto your university site, you're Calvin Newport. So I wondered if there was a sort of an alter ego thing going on between Cal and Calvin, but uh, maybe you can talk about that. But also um, just how do you manage that balance between the academic side of what you do and teaching about blockchain and things like that with obviously these ideas and the books and the promo that you have to do with that. Is that a difficult balance to strike? You know, people often in my orbits refer to it as my two careers, right? They say, oh, it's really interesting you have these two careers. Uh, you're a computer scientist and you're a writer. And I think that that used to be the case, that that was a good way of describing it, uh, you know, especially earlier on where, where the books I was writing were you know, related to some degree to my life, but weren't really that related to, to what I was doing as a computer scientist. Um, but I no longer really see it that way because starting with deep work, uh, moving on with digital minimalism, and then with the new book I'm working on about email and the workplace, these are all books that are about the intersection of technology and culture mm. and sort of unexpected consequences that arise when technology hits culture and, and the types of ways that we might respond to them. And to me, I see that as something that makes a lot of sense for a computer scientist to be working on, right? I mean, who better to talk about the impact of technologies than the technologists who are working on them in the first place? And so I would say the last like three to four years for me has really been an effort of bringing those two careers into one career. Mm. You know, I'm, uh, I'm an academic, I'm an intellectual, I, I study technology, I write about technology, I write philosophy about technology, I write academic papers about technology, and that uh, it's all part of the same professional identity. And so this has been a pretty important shift for me because otherwise, yeah, it is pretty hard. I mean, in the, in the years past, when this was two separate careers, uh, it was just like running two jobs. Yeah, and <laughs> that's hard to do. And there's two bosses there as well, right? So you have the, the publishers are your boss and then academically you have bosses too. So have you ever had times where that was difficult to manage just from a, a sort of demands on your time and schedule point of view? Uh, sure. I mean, so what I found is that like writing books at the same time that I'm writing academic works, that was never hard because that's what you do as an academic, especially at a research focused institution is you think and you write. And so, okay, the fact that I'm working on a book chapter today, uh, in addition to, let's say, a peer reviewed paper was kind of incidental. It's all the same activity, right? You, you think hard and write things. And so, so the mix those together was not a big deal. Publicity is a different thing. Um, and, and, and that has certainly been hard. I would say this digital minimalism caught me off guard because after Deep Work did so well, this is the first book in which there's actually sort of a full-throated, you know, team of five people working mm. on it style publicity campaign. And that I found out, okay, that takes up time that I'm not used to. That's not just taking a standard academic activity like writing and expanding what you're writing on. Um, it has been, you know, that made things exhausting. Uh, the other thing I discovered, I'm just as, a, as sort of an aside, was I had been keeping the two worlds kind of separate. 
like just not talking about it a lot. I mean, my tenure case, for example, I didn't mention any of my books. It was, it wasn't something I talked a lot about before at Georgetown. And I discovered at some point that a lot of people, you know, at the university didn't even really know what I was into. <laughs> And that this was this was starting to become problematic. I mean, so uh, last year I was looking ahead to this year. I was going to have this massive sort of international book tour for this huge release, and you know, someone asked me, "Hey, can you take on this big administrative role at Georgetown?" And I was like, "Well, I can't do it this year. Like, I have a big you know, international book release. I can't do an administrative, an optional administrative job." And essentially, the response from this uh, from this professor was like. Well, you got to get your priorities straight. Like, I know you you write this product, you do productivity advice for students or some sort of coaching <laughs> or something. I guess that's fine, but that can't get in the way of your job here for the university. You just do administrative work, and I'm thinking, yeah. well, my books are in twenty <laughs> languages. You know, I've I've sold a million copies. Like, this is crazy. Uh, and but I realized that's on me because I I had mm. I've been keeping those words. So so things have changed since then, and now I'm I'm much more engaged. I mean, I. You know, I'm much more engaged with our administration and telling them exactly what I'm up to. Uh, on Wednesday, a couple of days from now, I'm doing a big event at, at the university itself. Um, I'm, so anyways, that was an interesting shift. So publicity at a, at a big scale is hard. And so that I'm trying to learn how to balance that. Writing is not that hard to add in. And two, I realize I have to just tell people what I'm up to. I have to do the work myself of this is what my, you know, integrating those two things, making it clear for other people what I'm doing, why it's important, how it fits in with my other type of work. So it's definitely been a year of a couple, I guess the last couple of years have really been a, a lot of professional reflection and evolution, which has been exciting um, and, and something that was probably a long time coming. And so was there a kind of keeping it separate as Cal versus Calvin in the past? And which which one do you choose now? Oh, that's yeah. So the identities is an interesting, <laughs> it's actually a lot more prosaic. So I always go by Cal, right? That's what that's what everyone who knows calls me. Um, my original academic papers, however, for whatever reason, use my full name, Calvin, I think just incidentally, but the thing about academic papers is that they're all indexed on the name. Uh, okay. And so if you change the <laughs> version of the name you use, uh, so, so like when you go back and calculate statistics, like how many times have I been cited or something like that? If you change your name halfway through your career, uh, it's non-continuous. So um, yeah, I probably should have made sure that I used Cal when I wrote those initial academic papers. But once the first papers had Calvin, I never wanted to change it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose credit for those papers. And so now, yes, in, in computer science circles on papers, it's Calvin Newport. But everyone I know in computer science, like everyone else I know outside of that world, calls me Cal. So it'd be a bit like um, going for a run with your Fitbit turned off and then the run never happened sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, and which is a thing, like when, when you, if you get married and change your name as an academic or whatever, you have to go through all this work to like tell people up to this point, this is the name I'm using up to this point. This is the name I'm using because, you know, all of the search systems are based on name. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, marriage and changing your name. Um, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was um, where this stuff in particular, deep work and, and digital minimalism, where it sits with introverts versus extroverts so first of all what would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert or or an ambivert uh i'm almost certainly pretty far on the introverted side of the spectrum that's probably and i i would say the same for myself and just having read your stuff and there's certain bits of it that really jump out uh, that i think really kind of sing to my introverted side i just kind of wonder whether that was something that is does that make it more 
necessary and needed for extroverts to really think about this idea of deep work and that separation and focus? Or on the flip side, is it just much harder for them to even contemplate the idea of solitude and and being away because you want to be focused? I mean, the way I see it, like in the professional sphere, the market doesn't really care about this division between introverts and extroverts. The value of deep work is just concentrated focus helps you learn hard things faster and produce things at higher level of quality. And both those things are just very important. And so, you know, maybe an introvert is a little bit more comfortable with the long periods of concentration. I mean, I suppose that's true. Um, but actually, I'm not even sure if that's true as well. I think it might be a caricature of extroverts that uh, any period of focus work is somehow something that um, they don't like. I think it's actually quite common. There's a lot of extroverts who, let's say, are really into very solitary hobbies, like maybe they surf or they hunt or something where they have long periods of being alone. Um, but regardless, I think, you know, it's not about... Uh, you know, introverts versus extroverts, just the market is going mm. to give benefit to those who can focus. And then in people's personal digital life, people are often concerned, like, well, extroverts like this advice isn't good for extroverts. They, they should use a lot more, let's say, social media because they like to connect with people. Uh, to which I say, actually, for extroverts, the, the, the possible downsides are even larger when it comes to personal, especially social technologies, because online interaction is such an impoverished form of interaction as compared to real-world interaction that if you're an extrovert and you're spending all your time online, you're going to be sort of exceptionally lonely because you really value the real communication more than introverts, you're not getting it. Whereas an introvert can actually maybe displace a lot of valuable interaction and still kind of be okay because they don't crave it as much. And so in the in the space of personal use of technology, I think uh, it's not that extroverts should be using or, or get more value out of social media. I actually think they get more harm huh. out of social media because social media is when it displaces real interaction, that's felt harder by extroverts probably than it's felt by introverts. That's really interesting because I've always read those things that say people are really lonely online and stuff and, and slightly been skeptical about them. But I think that probably uh, helps me understand why I had that skepticism. That's really fascinating. Um, the final thing I wanted to ask you about is you talk about in digital minimalism the, the idea that you should align your choices around technology to your deeply held values. So I just thought I'll ask you the the nice simple question at the end is uh, what are your deeply held values? Um, well, I mean it's 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 an important question for everyone to ask. Uh, you know, I keep mine. I, I probably won't go through them in detail just for personal reasons, but I keep mine written down clearly, and a lot of minimalists do the same thing. So they have written down, here's the things I really care about in life. And then using the answers of those values to say, then here's the things I want to do with my time, right? And this is especially important to think about outside of your professional life, where what you do with your time is a little bit more prescribed. But what about outside of work? What are the activities that really get true back to these things that you value, the activities that you think are important to spend your time on? Mm. We don't think enough about that, but we should. And if you nail that down, then the minimalist mindset is, how do I do as much of this as possible? probably tech is going to help. There'll be certain things you can use tech to that's going to let you get better experiences with these things you care about or do it more often. Um, but unbridled tech use is probably going to get in the way. And so for the minimalist, is really working backwards from, here's what I value. These values tell me what I want to do with my time. I'm going to put some tech in the place that's going to help me do these things I like. And then everything else I want to get off my plate so that it doesn't get in the way of the small number of things I know for sure are really important to me. Mm. And that whole thing about uh, people spending some time to really understand and write down their values. Have you got any tools that you can recommend for people around that? Or 
um, anywhere that you can point people towards to to just kind of help them through that process. Paper notepad and a good pen combined right. with a lot of walking. That's, that's my <laughs> suggestion. You know, get outside, get walking without earbuds in, just you alone with your thoughts in interesting places. If it can be in the woods, even better. Have a good notebook, like a field notes notebook, which has really nice light grid lining and a good pen. Uh, and and write down, write what you're thinking, jot things down, think about it some more. Uh, you Basically, you, you do this sort of internal self-reflection and over time, you'll begin to clarify things. And it's a really exciting experience. There's no right or wrong answer, by the way. It's not like, I got to get this right. It's not about that. It's more about, I got to get something down and start living off of it. And then as time goes forward, I'll be able to refine and reflect that. Uh, but to me, that's the easiest way to do it. Get outside, move, write write down your thoughts as you have them. And over time, that'll emerge. I think that's a really lovely place to end. And uh, for me personally, this afternoon, I was actually going to take a ferry over to, to uh, Toronto Island and spend some time walking over there. So maybe I'm going to pack my notebook as I do that as well. Um, so Cal, it's just been brilliant having you on Beyond Busy. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to ask you to share your social media handles and where people can find you. But do you want to just give people the... Uh, the heads up of where they can find the book and if they want to find out more about you, where to go. Um, so you should be able to find the book in the, the standard places that you buy books. It's available, you know, US and all over the UK. Uh, and if you want to find out more about me or my writing, go to calnewport.com. I've been blogging there for well over a decade. And there's also links to all sorts of different interviews and uh, articles about my books, my ideas. So it's, it's a great place to jump in if you're curious and learning about learning more. Cool. I really recommend that. So just to say, Cal, thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Great. Thank you. And I'll, uh, I'll be thinking jealousy of you walking around <laughs> Toronto Island thinking big thoughts tonight as I find myself in meetings this afternoon. <laughs> Sounds good. So thanks again to Cal for being on the show. Thanks also to Lillian, who works with Cal at Penguin for helping set up the interview as well. Much appreciated. And also thanks to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. If you are interested in productivity and attention management advice for your team, then go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find all about the workshops that we do. I'm off to uh, ponder my social media usage and uh, go and have a walk around the islands of Toronto. And uh, I'll be back in two weeks time with another episode. So until then, take care. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podiantproductions.com.